I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, the sermon notes in your bulletin will be a big help to you, I'm sure. Uh, We have wonderful text ahead of us today, as each week we do as we open God's Word together. Uh, It's been 20 years since the first National Treasure movie came out. I don't know if you're a fan of National Treasure. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years, Nicolas Cage. Um, I enjoyed version one, version two. But the point of the movie, whether you like those kinds of things or not, is that there's an amazing treasure, and it's worth chasing. And I referenced that in your uh, little mind, of course, just to say the Gospel of Mark is kind of like that, too. That is, there's an amazing treasure. And as we, as we come to God's Word, one of the differences between the tellings of the story of Jesus in Mark and, in particular, John. There are four Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each tell a little bit of a different uh, approach to looking at the story of Jesus. John spends more of his time telling us who Jesus is. Mark spends more of his time showing us who Jesus is and intending that you and I would connect the dots, like find the treasure. We're going to see that today in the text. There there are a number of things here that it's as though Mark is shouting at us. Like, do you see? Do you see? Please pay attention to the text. I'm trying to tell a story here. Do you see what I'm after? And so Mark is in that process of discovery with us. Our privilege then to step into Mark 6, verses 30 to 56. This morning, of course, Pastor Kevin doing the same thing up at Central Bible Church. Pastor Nate down at Grace Community Church, where we will be a little later uh, today as well. I want to pray for us that God will help us to see the treasure that is here as we make our journey through three vignettes that make up today's preaching text, all right? Would you join me, please, then, as we pray? Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God. I I thank you for those who've come uh, this morning, early hour, and then this hour, those who are joining us online, and those who will come at the next hour as well. Thank you so much for each, each one, each one of us known by you and loved by you, the needs in our life, the concerns of our hearts, all of them precious in your sight and held in your very capable hands. Would you help us today as we come to your word to see, to be among those who see, and then seeing that we would understand, and in understanding that we would love what is here, and loving what is here, that we'd be changed by it, that we would obey you. So we invite you to help us here. Please, please do that, what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as you look at your sermon notes, just a few things leading us toward our text today. The review section, of course, is intended for that. The third bullet point there, I'm just reminding you, a week ago we looked at the first half of chapter 6 under the heading of the devastation of willing unbelief. Willing unbelief. And that culminated, of course, in the, that gripping story of Herod Antipas uh, separating John the Baptist from his head. You remember, um, not exactly light reading, but nonetheless, a uh, historical account of what took place with John the Baptist. Well, the devastation of willing unbelief, and I'm calling my thoughts today the blessing of humble trust, because that's where we're heading. Okay, the three stories, three vignettes that are part of today's preaching text do not all evidence humble trust. The third one does. So it's kind of like we're, we're heading that direction. So if you look at the part on your notes there called today's text, you'll see that the first of these three stories we're going to look at is one of the best known stories from the life of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. May I say, small piece of trivia, so now you're equipped when you play Bible trivia again, This is the only of the miracles in the New Testament that's repeated in all four Gospels. This one. Isn't that interesting? Small factoid. Now you'll know. You had something over coffee. By the way, did you know? And you did because you were here today. So the feeding of the 5,000. Then there is uh, boys in the boat, part two. Okay, so the uh, chapter four, we had the one moment where Jesus calms the storm, peace, be still, and, and all that. And the question, of course, that's so gripping, because it's part of Mark's big picture narrative, who then is this? That, that even the winds and the sea obey him. And it's not answered, is it? Because Mark is leading us on a treasure hunt. He's intending that you would connect the dots. Please, I can just picture Mark saying, please get it. 
Who, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So that's boys in the boat one. Today's text then, boys in the boat two. There's another paragraph. My goodness sakes. Good stuff. I'm so excited about that. And then we come to that third little part where, where there's really no teaching involved. But there's this third section. I call it warm and faith-filled where there's, there's some people who they don't understand everything there is about Jesus. But they, they recognize him as the healer. And they run. They run. It's like pulling into Les Schwab. You know what I'm talking about. If they're well-trained, they run to help you. So here, um, Jesus comes and people run. People run. Get, get the people. Get the sick people. Bring them, bring them now. Come, come. Faith-filled, warm. I call that the humble trust part. But these are the three vignettes that we get to look at together. So Mark chapter 6 starting at verse 30, and I'm going to read that whole section all the way down to verse 56, and then I'll, I'll just uh, lead us along with some comments in each case, probably not draining each one. There's more to be said, but uh, we'll, we'll look at those three uh, vignettes together. But let's hear God's word then as I, as I read it for us. Mark 6, starting at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd Remember the crowds in the Gospel of Mark, not always Jesus' friends. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Very important phrase. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Third time it's identified such. A desolate place. The hour is now come. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give give it to them to eat? He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And when he had taken leave of them, he went went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he said to them, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Isn't that interesting? When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran, ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the the fringe or the tassels of his garment as an observant Jew would wear those tassels, the, the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. God's word. Wow. 
Okay, so before we step into this wonderful telling of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I want to, I want to say a word about the Bible, okay? There is, um, there's way too much, uh, some, I call it chatter, I suppose, poor teaching, uh, that shows up on our airways and sometimes in books that suggests that somehow the Old Testament, of course, is old and kind of like it's, it's like God tried something and it just didn't work out. You know, like God gave some laws and things and he hoped everybody would figure it out and he didn't. So he kind of said, okay, let's scrap that system. Let me try again. And so he sent Jesus. And I'm hardly exaggerating when I say it that way. We kind of need to disconnect from the Old Testament. And I quickly say, what are you talking about, disconnect from the Old Testament? It's the Old Testament that paves the way for Jesus. The Old Testament is like signpost after signpost saying, look, look at Jesus, the one who is to come. It's preparing the way, unhooked from the Old Testament, unhitched from the Old Testament. Are you kidding me? Don't do that. How about just study it better? That would be my answer. Now, that's important in this text. That's why I take a moment for that. It's not a rabbit trail. It's preparing the way for where we're going. Let me give you an example when it comes to studying the Bible about this Old Testament, New Testament thing. If you read the book of Hebrews, you will find Jesus presented, you ready, as a greater prophet than Moses... Moses prays, Old Testament, uh, that God would raise up another prophet like him. Jesus is presented as a better prophet than Moses, as a greater king than David, and as a greater priest than Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood. A greater prophet, priest, and king. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is presenting a flawed system. It means the Old Testament is preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. That's why the book of Hebrews makes sense. Look, do you see the glory of Christ, the greater prophet, priest, and king? Do you see, the writer to Hebrews would say, do you see him? Well, okay, so today, I want to suggest to you in our telling of the story, as Mark is explaining, he's leading us on this treasure hunt. The Old Testament just, just runs like a river underneath this whole text. And, and Mark, I would suggest to you, as a good Jew who knows his Old Testament, he's hoping you'll get it. Oh, please, I can picture Mark saying, do you see what we're doing here? Do you see the picture we're painting? Somebody, please. I mean, it's like the Old Testament is percolating through all of this. And, and Mark is just dying to have you see it. So we could quickly just read it through and go, oh, hungry people, he fed them. That was kind of fun. And off you go, water, yeah, that's kind of weird, and, and be done. And miss it. We don't want to miss it. Please, please notice what's going on in the text. So with that, you come to this story, the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to jump in here at verse 30. A lot of material. I'm just going to quickly go through and skip a bunch just because of the sake of giving this whole package together to us. So we mentioned last week that verse 30 is the end of one of those Markan sandwiches. Remember us explaining this in terms of literary devices. Mark does this in a number of places where he starts a story, inserts another, and then concludes that, that the first story. This is another one of those because verse 30 is like, that's a wrap. It's the wrap of the previous story where, where Jesus sends out the, the 12, two by two, and they go away. And then you have the whole story of King Herod and John the Baptist. And then here you have in verse 30, and then the apostles return to Jesus. So it's like a conclusion of that previous story. And they're coming back. So just kind of note that. And you have to have some sympathy here for Jesus in the, the disciples. Verses 30 and what follows. They're busy. This is like 20th century, 21st century. And probably along as life unfolds for us. They're busy. They're busy. There's so much going on in ministry. And it's right at a time of busyness. Jesus says, time out. Don't wait till all this stuff is done before you take a break. If you wait till everything is done before you take a time out to spend time with Jesus, you're never coming. You're never coming. There will always be needy people, always be things to do. Your, your to-do list will never get done. For all you type A people who think you can't rest until all the checklists are done, listen carefully, please. In the midst of a busy season of ministry, Jesus says, come away and rest. Imagine all the type B people or A minus people are going, yes, told you. Well, so it goes in the text. They don't even have time to eat. Sounds like they have young children. Well, uh, there's hardly, hardly leisure even to eat. They get in a boat to go away to a desolate place, and it gets worse from there because there are people who see where they're going, 
and scout it out and say, let's beat them there. And you could do it if the, if, the, if the wind is a little slow on the lake and you can run quickly. I mean, you're going to go. And these people did that. So I can just picture this. Jesus saying, come away and rest. And the disciples, I don't know what they said. I'm assuming they would have said, wonderful. Let's get away from the busyness and let's have time with Jesus. Off they go. And they pull into shore in verse 34. And there's the, there are the people. This is that classic. They're back. Oh, no. We were trying to get away from you all. And here you are again. This is going to be great. I can picture in my mind's eye moments when I just desperately wanted to, like, like get away, come away. And, and uh, coming back, I can, many times taken mission trips with uh, teenagers during my youth pastor years. I remember coming back after two, two and a half weeks with a big yellow bus and, and crowds of teenagers. And air conditioning means you put the windows down and fast food and sleeping on floors. And somebody's probably throwing up today and ministry. And you're the last one to sleep and the first one up. It is what it is. And I'm one of the bus drivers. So I, you, you, I remember coming in 18 days of, on a trip, setting the brake, and just smiling and saying, just, just, just get off the bus. Your parents are here for you. They love you. Please leave. Please leave now. Parents were in the back of the bus unloading stuff. I'm saying, get your stuff. And I sat there in that, in the driver's chair just for the longest time, just saying, go. Jesus loves you. And so do I, (laughs) but please go now picture at that moment. If their parents had said, let's surprise him and loaded him up in cars and went to my house. Can you imagine the moment if I pulled in and went, oh, they're here too. This, th- that is what I picture here, is, is Jesus and his disciples come away. Oh, yes. And you pull in and here they are smiling. People going, hi, it's the needy people. We're here at your house. Oh, my goodness sakes. But Jesus, you, you get a glimpse of his heart. It doesn't tell you what's going on in the disciples. Um, I don't know if they've got the eye roll thing going on. If they're saying, you tell them to leave. No, you tell them. I don't know what's going on. All you know is the heart of Jesus. And Jesus' heart, of course, is there in verse 34. He went ashore. Remember, the, remember I said, you've got to see. Mark wants you to see. What does Jesus do? He sees. You should be, pay attention. We're heading into a section of Mark where seeing is especially important. So if you're one of those people who notices details, as I hope you're, you are, um, notice in the texts that follow, the chapters that follow, the, the emphasis on seeing. Do you see the blind people who are granted their sight? And the, the times we're, we're seeing, and, and some people can see physically, but they can't see spiritually. So here, Jesus, what's he do? He sees the great crowd. And in his seeing, he has compassion on them. Not irritation, not exasperation, not it's you again. He sees with the heart of compassion. This should, this should warm your heart. If you're ever that person who kind of has, you could easily have the sense, it's me again, Jesus. You ever wonder, are you getting tired of me coming and asking the same thing again or the same need? The answer is, is no. He never gets tired of you coming. This is the heart of a shepherd who never wearies with crazy sheep. Sorry, I met the other people. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And okay, I mentioned earlier, Old Testament, you, you, you should be, as we come into this story, you should be just, just waiting for the Old Testament to, to, to surprise you. Old Testament, where, where is it about a sheep without shepherd? Where are shepherds in the Old Testament? Where are they? Can anybody think of anything in the Old Testament about shepherds? Mark, we, let me think. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Oh, what's going on later in the text? He leads me beside still waters. He restores. He satisfies my soul. What is the good shepherd going to do here? I have it under the heading. Jesus, the bread from heaven, feeds the flock. Yes, Jesus, the good shepherd, is is going to care for his sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. The book of Ezekiel has shepherds that are bad shepherds. Who are, who are fleecing the flock, pun intended, eating, eating the flock, not just caring for them. 
You have bad shepherds. Now, again, I would hasten to tell you as you read the Bible, New Testament shepherd is usually used more in a ministry sense, like pastors and shepherds. In the Old Testament, you'll read about shepherds in Ezekiel and so on. It doesn't just mean like spiritual leaders. The word shepherd in the Old Testament routinely includes civic leaders, kings, and so on. So it's not just religious leaders who are called shepherds in the Old Testament scriptures in particular. Sometimes people read the Old Testament and say, look at that in Ezekiel. He's spanking the pastors. Yeah, it's really not the pastors. Uh, they, they could be included. He's spanking a whole bunch of people, all the leaders of the people, this, including the, the civic leaders. They're, they were scoundrels too. So, so Jesus still comes. He has compassion on the people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And then we head toward this moment of need where there's hunger. Okay, now, uh, notice a couple details. I'll let you just percolate on some of these. In the last story with, with, with Herod Antipas and John the Baptist, there was a big meal, wasn't there? There was a banquet for a bunch of riffraff, and it resulted in death. Very next story, there's another banquet, isn't there? Except it's one that results in life. You have a bad leader in Herod Antipas. And you have a good leader, a shepherd leader in Jesus, both providing banquets with a different purpose. It's just kind of interesting that those stories are presented back to back. Old Testament, who feeds people in the wilderness? Who provides bread from heaven? Well, God does this through Moses, his servant. Moses, who is one of the great contrasts to Jesus in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, a greater prophet than Moses. Here you have Jesus about to provide bread in the desert. Now, I mentioned already that this is the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospels. I'm going to make a couple comments from John's Gospel. and you, 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 Granted, written later, I got the, got the memo on that. In John 6, though, uh, the, the, this other account especially is worth reading. If you're getting ready for your community group or whatever, you might just read that because in John's gospel in particular, there's a much stronger body of information. Mark is more just the facts. Remember, John is much longer. Mark is just saying, just figure it out, discover it. John is busy telling you. We'll take a look in John 6 where the leaders that are present are talking about this Moses. I mean, our fathers gave us bread in the wilderness. You know, who are you? Are you think you're better than him? Jesus says, ah, what's he say? I'm the living bread. That came down out of heaven. I'm the I'm I'm a different kind of bread. So Moses shows up a lot in John six in the, the a lot more of the commentary on this account. I'm simply saying, I, I believe Jesus is presented here as greater than Moses, who fed people in the desert with manna from heaven. Jesus is the one here, the great shepherd, the greater prophet, who breaks bread. And distributes it. Now, more on Moses in just a couple of minutes. But I think the contrast to the Old Testament is, is very, very strong. John's Gospel especially makes that connection. Now, if you, if you look at my sermon notes, there are a couple of things I want to comment on here. Uh, some key details. Yes, it's the first of two big feeding stories. Of, of the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Um, I, I mentioned here on your notes that in the, in the Gospels, food and drink, the whole Bible, really, food and drink often have a bigger story. They're often very symbolic of something. For example, in the Gospel of John, where you have Jesus coming to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, the wine runs out. Remember this? Jesus uh, turns water into wine. It isn't just, oh, that's cool. Like, nice miracle. Have them come to my house. That isn't, it, you, you missed the point, if that's all you see. No, wine in the Bible represents joy. And at that moment in the wedding feast, joy runs out. Jesus, who is Jesus? If, if, he's, if he's anything, and he is, he's joy in person. He's the bringer of joy. He's the giver of joy. He's the source of joy. He, he turns water into wine, and what happens at the wedding feast? Joy returns. So there's more going on there than just the basics of food and water or wine. In that case, here, there's more going on than just some fish and some bread. Something else is being taught. I think, I think we're looking to Moses. Now, in front of you there on your, your notes, a couple other details. I love this. So in verse 31, Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. He says to weary people, rest. Who is saying this? I say, the Lord of Sabbath, Shabbat, the Lord of, of Shabbat, the Lord of Sabbath is the one who is saying, come away and rest. In our culture, we often um, give raises to and bonuses to the people who are so busy, they don't have time to rest. We reward that, don't we? 
Okay, Jesus says, come away in the midst of busyness. Just put it down. You, you think your biggest need is to get everything done? No, it'll never be done. And if you wait to spend time with me till you're done with everything, you're never coming. It'll, you, you, that, that's a fantasy. So in the midst of it, the one who is himself rest says, come away to a desolate place and rest a while, says the Lord of Sabbath. Sabbath, you remember Old Testament, was a gift. People look at it and get all cranky. It's ridiculous. You have to stop everything, all these rules. Yeah, yeah. They were for your good because God knew without a bunch of rules, you would never stop it. Huh? So he gave rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Because without the rules, you won't quit. So God said, I I am rest to you. So I'm telling you to rest. I'm commanding you to rest. The one who is rest, he himself. You've heard me say, if you've been in this room before, the Bible presents four kinds of rest. Certainly there's Sabbath rest. That was a picture of, of spiritual rest. When we come to Christ, we cease from our labors to try to earn salvation, earn favor with God, and we rest in Christ alone. We trust him fully uh, for, for forgiveness of sins. That is a type of rest as well. Daily rest, daily trust as we trust him with the loads we carry today in our lives. Life. We trust him. That's a type of rest and certainly eternal rest when our lives here are done and we enter his presence. People say he entered into rest. She entered into rest on this day. That's what they're meaning. It's a very biblical way to speak about it. Entering into eternal rest as the result of resting in Christ for salvation. I'm just giving you a ton of information right here. I know. Come away and rest, says the Lord of Sabbath. Jesus has compassion. Yes, indeed. A gentle and lowly Savior. Some of you studying that book. I'll comment on it in just a little bit. The disciples say, send them away. Jesus says, feed them. He does, and they are satisfied. Did you hear the songs we sang earlier? I, I, I always hope that people pay attention and listen to the themes. Pastor Stephen chose, I will wait for you to teach this lesson ahead of time to prepare your heart. I will wait for you. I'll wait for you until uh, my soul is satisfied. You sang it earlier. That, that's what, that's the, that is what God promises in the person of Christ. Come and find rest and be satisfied. Let your soul be satisfied. We sang it earlier. Hopefully you noticed as we did that. Um, we could talk about the five loaves and two fish. I, I think it's five loaves and two fish. People wax eloquent down through the years about the symbolism of that. John says they were barley loaves. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Jesus looks up to heaven, says a blessing. What does he say? Bless this food to our bodies. Interestingly, in the Bible, you know what? <clears throat> Blessings at mealtime weren't blessing the food. Sorry. Just poked a hole in that one. In the Jewish context... We bless God. Isn't that interesting? Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, make uh, the one who gives us bread from heaven to eat. Who are you blessing? The food? O Lord, we bless you today. You are the giver of this good gift. Go ahead and pray as you wish. Go ahead and ask God to bless the food. That's fine. But in a Jewish context, the blessing was vertical. Blessed art thou. King of the universe, oh Lord our God, King of the universe, who gives us bread from heaven to eat. That's probably what Jesus prayed. That was a standard table blessing. Blessed art thou, O oh Lord our God, who gives us bread from heaven. You bless him. You bless him. That's probably what Jesus did. Broke the loaves and gave it, and they were satisfied. Jesus, the bread from heaven, feeds, feeds the flock. I want to move to the next section, okay? Uh, we're looking at the, heading toward this blessing of humble trust. So this feeding of the 5,000, Moses, I think, is an underlying current, and the next section, even more so. <clears throat> so this heading, of course, as you see on your notes, do you see and understand God is drawing near? And I've chosen those words very decidedly. God is drawing near. I, I meant it that way, okay? So, boat, story in the boat, men, boys in the boat, number two. There's an urgency presented in verse 45. It's intended to be there by Mark. So the feeding of the 5,000, they pick up the extra pieces, 12 baskets, probably one per disciple, and there's leftovers, more than enough. What Jesus provides is more than enough. And immediately, it says, he made his disciples. These are words of urgency and immediacy. He made his disciples get in the boat and go before him. He says, I'll stay here and send them home, and you boys get out of here. What's, what in the world is the urgency? What's the problem here? How come he's so urgent? Now, Mark doesn't tell you. He, because you're good Bible students, 
you're hopefully asking those questions. I wonder what the deal. What do you mean, get out of here? It's like he's going, gip, gip, scoot. Like, you know, a, a, a mother on a rainy day, and it's not raining that hard, and the kids need to get outside. So you go, shoo, outside. Put your boots on. I don't care. Go. Uh, it's that with Jesus. Out. Away with you. Get in the boat. Go. Go. Get in the, just, get, just get in the boat. Put it all down. Put the basket. Get in the boat and go. Why? Well, because you're good Bible students, you'll have read all the other four accounts of the feeding of 5,000. And you'll notice in John, because I'm referencing John a lot today, you'll notice in John that at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, John records that people were so struck by this guy who can feed him, they were prepared to come and make him king. Okay, if, if you're hanging with Jesus and you hear the muttering in the crowd, this guy would make a good ruler. We should make him king. What are you doing? And the disciples, of course, are young guys. You're familiar with that, right? Uh, teenage boys, early 20s, they're young. We would call, no offense to anybody in the crowd, we would call them kids. They're kids. What do, if, if you're talking about the big guy becoming king, what does that make you? Remember the whole discussion? I want to sit on the right. You want to sit on the left? That'll work. I can just hear the third. Hey, guys, they're talking about making him king. Whoa. Maybe, I mean, I'm just saying, I think I'd make a really good prime minister. Don't you think I'd make a good prime minister? I can just picture. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm not saying it is. But maybe there was enough of this percolating through the crowd where Jesus said, okay, I know that being king isn't my mission, but you don't know that yet. I think I need you to just leave. Because some of this could go to your head. I wonder. I'm, I'm, this is uh, hopefully sanctified curiosity. Uh, but I can't say thus says the Lord on that part. But I wonder it. If that's what's going on. Jesus for their own good. Hear this? For their own good. Is saying you need to leave. I wonder if it's for your own good. Get in the boat. I know you don't understand. I need to have you leave the area. What? Come on. We like it. Just... just Sometimes Jesus does things that don't make sense to us. This could be one of them. Well, perhaps. Off they go then. Uh, and Jesus now. You, you've got to notice the pattern. I'm going to be I'm asking you to think Moses again. Jesus sends them away and he goes up on the mountaintop to pray. By the way, small details, this is the third place. Uh, the second of three places in the whole gospel of Mark where Jesus prays. There's three. One at the beginning of his ministry, one as he wrestles in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this one in the middle. It's leading up to, of course, chapter 8, where, where Peter makes that big pronouncement, you're the Christ, you're the Christ, or as you find in Matthew, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that big announcement. But there's a beginning prayer. Uh, it, I'm sure he prayed more than this, but Mark just mentions three. Here, so you, you right away say, why, why is that so significant here? Why is Jesus, and I'm going to answer it in a minute, why is it so significant that Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray and then comes down for what follows? Is, is Mark painting a picture? And I want to suggest to you that he is. He's intending for you to see something. Okay? So first prayer, beginning, middle prayer, right here. Third prayer, Garden of Gethsemane. What's going on? When evening came, he can see the boats out on the sea. How does he see this? Apparently it's night because the fourth watch, when he goes to them, the fourth watch of the night is like 3 a.m. to 6. Was it, was it, was it, is this a divine thing whereby, you know, the fact that he's God in the flesh, he could see? Was, this, was the moon out? If it's a bright night, you actually could see a ways out on, that, on the Sea of Galilee. It's an inland lake, and there are hills all around. It is conceivable that if you had a really bright night with the moon, that you could kind of see. We're not told, and I don't think that's the major issue here. So don't get lost too much. If you spend half an hour in your community group discussing that, you're discussing the small stuff. The fact is, it says he saw. He could see the boat. He could see that they were struggling. Uh, the wind was against them. That, that what I want you to notice, it says the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he, here's the big phrase, he meant to pass by them. Stop. Your good, biblically-oriented study mind says, why? Was he just like he was going to try to get to the other side? Um, what's going on? What do you mean he meant to pass him? If he meant to pass, he couldn't, he couldn't just pass him by. He didn't really have to go close. Why did, and I put on my notes, 
God is drawing near. I'm after something. I think Mark is too. I would suggest Jesus is. Now, if you look at your notes, I'm going to my second bullet point under this heading. Um, Even more than drawing Mark 4 to mind, the first boat story, peace be still, I think that this story isn't, here's the answer, I'm answering my question here. I think this story in Mark 6 is intended to make you remember Exodus 33 and 34, which is a classic, well-known, hallmark text in the Old Testament. And I'm going to go there with you for a couple of moments and show you why I think that. Okay, I want to go to Exodus 33 and 34. Every Jewish guy, gal, would know this. If they knew the Torah, they would know this. Um, these are familiar stories, iconic. Um, they're pieces of information that well-educated Americans know right away. And there are texts in the Old Testament that well-educated Jewish people would have known like the back of their hand. Now, in the Exodus story, when you come to Exodus 33 and 34, let me just orient you to what's going on. Uh, Moses, of course, has been up on Mount Sinai. You remember that? And he's gone up there. He's gotten the 10 words, the 10 commandments, first and second tables of the law. He's been up there. He's heard from God, met with God, and, and uh, that, that whole amazing sequence. He comes down from the mountain. There's a golden calf. What's he do if you've seen the movie? Yeah, you know it. Shatters, throws him down, which was not just because he was frustrated. There's, this is symbolic. <laughs> Just as in front of him, there's a golden calf being, being worshipped and idolatry is, is taking place. The first, the first item, you shall have no other gods before me, it's being broken. So he shatters the Ten Commandments, symbolizing the shattering the Ten Commandments that's happening already in front of him. They have already been broken. So if you only read frustration, I think you're missing the symbolism. No, it's, they're broken. Look, I, the ink is still wet, for goodness sakes. Smash. It's already broken. So this is right, this is happening right after that. And there's a conversation, middle of chapter 34, where God says, take the people up, lead them, but I will not go among you. Look, I mean, look at you guys. I, my presence will not be among you. And Moses says, stop everything to God. If you're not going to go among us, I'm not going either. We are not moving. You must go among us. You must I know we're stubborn and hard-hearted people. If you don't go among us, you, you just have to go among us. And so this is the wrestling happening in Exodus 33. And finally, and God does say, yes, my presence will go with you. I'll give you rest, Moses. If your presence will not go with us, don't bring us up from here. Okay, I come to verse 17 then, chapter 33. Please look at this with me. And look at the words, please. And I think this is the text that Mark is intending that you would see, that Jesus is intending that you would see by what takes place with the boys in the boat. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, that is be among me, be among us, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I, I know you by name, which is kind of a cool phrase too. I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Okay, please. Oh my goodness sakes. Please get these details. This is about displaying the glory of God. That's what's going on. That's the purpose of this text. Show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness, my attributes, that is, pass before you, pass, pass by you. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, I am the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And, but he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That is, God saying, you cannot see the full display of my glory and live. These physical bodies, people, oh, detail upon detail. These physical bodies cannot handle a full display of the glory of God. For you to see a full display of the glory of God, guess what you need? You need a different body, one fit for heaven. That's why this body isn't fit for heaven the way it is. This is an earthly body. It's 1 Corinthians 15. You need a different body to handle the full display of the glory of God, to handle heaven. So this one is intended for here. It's got to be glorified, made new. Okay, that's a, that's a sidebar. Now you come to verse 21. The Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and when my glory, oh, 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 what is this? When my glory passes by, draws near, 
when my glory passes by. By the way, in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know what word's being used here? Yeah, you'll never guess. It's exactly the same word as in Mark 6 when Jesus passes by the boys in the boat. As throughout the text, my glory is going to pass by. I'm going to let you see a little bit of my glory. I'm going to let you see a hint of it. Who is my name? Yahweh, the Lord, I am. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. If you're my age or thereabouts, you know there's a song about this, right? In the cleft of the rock. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. Um, I'll cover you there with my hand. Fanny Crosby, I think, wrote that song. Beautiful, beautiful. Then God says, I'll take away my hand and you'll still see my back. That is the, like the afterburners, the, a, a part of my glory, but my face, the full display of my glory, you cannot see. Now, keep going. Take a look into chapter 34. The Lord says to Moses, get two more tablets of stone. Come on back up. Come back up to Mount Sinai. So this, the, the, the representative of God, Moses, is going back up the mountain. Please, please get all these details. He goes back up the mountain. He says, don't let anybody else come. Just you come alone. Just you, Moses. Nobody else goes. Come alone up to the mountain. Makes these two tablets like the first. And that's what, that's what he does. God, in verse 5, descends in the cloud. So sight is obscured. Can't see real well. Descends in the cloud, stands before him there and proclaims the name of the Lord. This is profound self-revelation. God explaining what he's like. The Lord, oh boy, there it is again. The Lord passed before him. The Lord passed by. The Lord drew near. That's what he did. And, in, and then he proclaims, do you hear who I am? Yahweh, that is, I am He says it twice, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He tells what he's like, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is, he is totally just. God's judgment indeed can be interrupted by mercy. But when, when there is no repentance and turning from sin, yes, sin has tremendous consequences. Moses bows his face to the ground and worship. Uh, those of you in the uh, class where you're looking at the gentle and lowly book, you'll find this section in the book that you're going to look at today, that section of the book. Gentle and lowly is one of the books that draws the connection between Mark 6 and Exodus 34. So if you go to the next hour, you'll go, oh, we just heard that told you is my very sanctified answer. Okay. Now come back with me then to Mark six. I I, I want you just to see what's going on in the text and why I think that Jesus is intending. Mark is intending that you would see the work of God, Moses in the old Testament, God himself uh, interacting with people. So in, in, in verse 46, representative of God is on the mountain alone. That interesting. He's come up to the mountain. This is that second moment where Jesus prays. He goes alone. I said there are three times Jesus prays in Mark. Why is this one here? I think it's that. He went up on the mountain alone to pray, just like Moses went up on the mountain to meet with the Father. And then he came down from the mountain for this moment of self-revelation. That takes place in Exodus 34. What happens here? The representative of God leaves, he's up on the mountain alone, comes down, sees the disciples, and he does exactly what God does in Exodus 33 and 34. He, he comes to pass by, to draw near, to display his glory. So I think it's a retelling, a recapitulation. It's a similar thing. The Old Testament laying the groundwork for the new, and Jesus is saying, do you see? Do you see? One greater than Moses is here. Even as Moses enacted this, this whole scenario and God's glory was displayed, so Jesus, the one greater than Moses, goes on a mountain alone, comes down, and then this wonderful moment of self-revelation. What do I mean by that? 
You already, we already read Exodus 33, 34. He meant to pass by, and again, passing by and drawing near. I think very similar concepts, even grammatically. They saw him walking on the sea. They think it's a ghost. They don't get all this. They don't see it. They cry out. They're scared. People are terrified all over. Um, chapter 4, in the boat, terrified. Chapter 5, uh, cast out the demons. People are terrified. So again here, he says to them this moment of self-revelation. What does he say? He says, take heart. Yahweh. No, it says, it is I. Yes, I know. Sorry. Uh, two quick Greek words. Ego a me. It's I am. It's I am. It's the same. It can mean it is I. But it's the same two words that you, you, Jesus uses when he says, as in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved. I'm the living water. All the I am statements, ego a me. John chapter 8, when people are asking him, who do you make yourself out to be? And that whole thing. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, ego a me. I am. Uh, when people knock on my door, there have been a number of conversations when I've gone to Mark, uh, sorry, to John 8 and posed a question. When, when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, and it says the Jews took up stones to stone him. My question is, why did they take up stones to stone him? What did they hear him say? Whatever it was, was enough to make them want to stone him, which is what you did to somebody who was blaspheming. They didn't stone you because you're ugly. Okay? Jesus said before Abraham was born, ego me, I am. Which every good Jew would go, well, that's Exodus 3. Where God says, Moses says, tell me your name. And God says, I am who I am. Yahweh. Uh, I, I, did you just say that's who you are? Before Abraham was born, I am. And so they took up stones to stone him. It can't possibly be true. Unless it was. And I'm just saying, even as Moses, up on the mountain alone, comes down off the mountain, and there's this moment of self-revelation where God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is what I am like. So Jesus goes alone to a mountain to pray, comes down off the mountain, this moment of self-revelation, even as God passed by to show his glory in Exodus 33 and 34. So here, Jesus passes by to show his glory, gets in the boat. The wind stops immediately. Why does it stop immediately? What an amazing coincidence. It wasn't a coincidence. No, the creator got into the boat with them. And and back in chapter four, he used words to calm the storm. Here, he doesn't need words. He calms the storm again. And just like in chapter four, his disciples should have been asking, as they did, um, who is this? Who's in the boat? Who's with us in the storm? Who's being revealed to us in the darkness of night? There was a cloud on Mount Sinai. Here it's darkness that's, that's kind of obscuring the view. The, the, the similarities are too obvious to just have it be coincidental. No, the Old Testament is paving the way for the new. Jesus has his eye on what happened in, with Moses and says, Do you see one greater than Moses is among you? Do you see? It is I. I am Yahweh, he calms the storm without a word. Okay, the, the last little paragraph is just like icing on the cake. It's hot fudge on the ice cream. It's pepperoni on the pizza. That's what it is. It's verses 53 to 56. So he lands the boat. There's no teaching that takes place here. What takes place is the people immediately see him as the teacher. The response of the people is the main emphasis. That's the emphasis here. Do you see what the people do? He gets out of the boat and immediately... They see who it is. It's the healer. It's the healer. And what do they do? They do what the other guys should have done. And we're all the way through the gospel. They should be doing. They ran. They ran to take this news to the whole region. That's verse 55. I called it humble trust. I don't think they recognize everything about who Jesus is as Messiah. But they do know this. I think that's the, I don't understand everything, but this I know. Whereas I was blind, the man born blind, John 9, whereas I was blind, now I see. I think it's kind of like that. I don't know everything, but I know that he's the healer, and I'm going to run to tell people. I'm going to run throughout the whole region. You remember, if your little village is two miles away, how are you going to get there? Yeah, run. You're going to get whoever you know who's sick. Get so-and-so, get so-and-so, get so-and-so. So-and-so fell off the tractor, broke both legs. They healed crooked. What are we going to do? I know. The healer's here. Get him. Get him now. 
And off they go to Jesus. I say this took a while, I suggest, for a little while at least, a prolonged season. I don't mean weeks and months, but certainly at least some days because it talks about villages and cities and countryside. And, and they're bringing their sick, laying them in the marketplace and saying, just, just touch him. Just let him touch the, the fringe of his garment. And the touch of the master heals them. The touch of the good shepherd, the touch of the great shepherd, the feeding of the bread of life brings healing and wholeness and satisfaction to everybody with a need. Okay, that's how this section concludes. There's a big shift heading into chapter 7, as we'll see next week. We're back into confrontation with um, some know-it-all religious people. But, but this whole section where you meet the bread of life and then God himself in the boat in the storm and people saying, go, 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 tell everyone, tell everyone, come, come quickly. Uh, you go to that part called responding to God's word. I'm, I'm just asking you here, do you see? Do you see this? Do you see who's in the boat with you? Do you see who's in the storm with you? Do you see or are your eyes closed? Do you see who it is? And in seeing, do you respond like these people running to him and taking everybody else, you know, come, come. Is that what you do? Do you see with the eyes of saving faith who Jesus is? Do you see who's in the storm with you? Maybe today there are things that you've come with that are concerns and struggles. Family, I don't just mean physical things, though those are real. And there are a number of significant things, as you know, in our church family, where there are critical, critical needs physically. Those aren't the only needs. There's spiritual needs and there's struggles of the heart. I hope that today, if you have those kinds of things you came in here with, that this is going to be your moment to lift them up to the Lord and say, here it is. You're the only one who can help. Here it is. I bring it to you. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us as we go. Our Father, thank you so much that Jesus is with us in the boat, in the storm, when things are obscured in the cloud or in what feels like the night. I thank you that your eyes are not hindered from seeing us by darkness physically. But you as the good shepherd see the needs of the sheep and you never weary of sheep coming to you. You, you respond with a heart of compassion every single time. And we're so thankful for that, even as you said uh, about Moses, that you knew him by name. Thank you that you know us by name, too, because you are a good shepherd to us. And, Father, we're not that smart. There's so much we don't understand, and so many times we just don't get it right. Uh, Here the disciples were. (laughs) They didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand. Their hearts were hardened. Sometimes ours are, too. Would you help us today to have clearer vision about what you're like and who you are, that we would come to you with our needs and say, Lord, here it is. Please help. Please help. Thank you for meeting us here today in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.